You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah this morning. We're just a couple of sermons away here from the end. And I want you to look at chapter 12 today, the end of chapter 12. A little uh, verses 27 through 47, which is the dedication service of the wall. It's uh, interesting to me to find that the climax to the book of, of Nehemiah, uh, you might say the dedication of the wall, this service, it's interesting to find it here at the end of the book. Because if you remember back in the story, that uh, the wall was completed at the end of chapter 6. Uh, and so... We ask, why does it uh, wait all the way here to the end of chapter 12 and, uh, to uh, have this dedication service? And I think, again, that's drawing our attention to the fact that, that the point of this book is not just the building of the wall, but it was the building of God's people. And so the first half of the book is emphasizing the wall, but the, the last half, chapters 8 through 12 and 13, have been speaking of God renewing His people. And so what happens here? At the dedication of the wall really is a climax uh, to the book. And, and it reminds us that, that the chief purpose of our lives is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever and worship. And so how fitting it is uh, that the book ends with a worship uh, service, at least here in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. Notice down in verse 38. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshanah, and by the fish gate and tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. Look down in verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests, for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. 
And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we get to share this morning. And now, Lord, to turn to your word and hear from you. Please give us ears to hear, hearts that are ready to receive, Lord, your word through the power of your spirit to us. And may you be glorified and honored. And I pray that as uh, this morning you would use me as your servant, I, I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been said that if you put two Baptists in a room, that you'll have at least four opinions. And I've found that in my time in, in, in ministry, pastoring, that people have some of the strongest opinions about preferences and over worship. Not whether we should worship, thank goodness. I think we all know that. Amen? There's a great God. We need to worship Him. Uh, but it seems that the opinions are about the best way to worship. And it seems everyone has a, a, an opinion about that. Uh, should we uh, have a choir or a praise team? Should we use a hymn book or a screen? Uh, should we have p- piano or guitar, band or orchestra, uh, traditional contemporary, modern. Uh, I grew up in a church where, uh, and in a time, I would say, when, when we pretty much sang hymns, that's all we sang together. Hymns out of the hymn book uh, each Sunday morning. That is until praise courses came on the scene. Anybody remember praise courses? Uh, I heard about an old farmer who decided to go into the city one weekend and attend the city church. And he came home to his wife that afternoon, and she said, how was it? And he said, well, it was different. She said, different? How, how was it different? And he said, well, you know how we sing hymns in our church? He said, in the city church, they sing praise choruses. She said, what's a praise chorus? And he said, well, if I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn, that would be a hymn. But if I were to say it in a praise chorus, it would sound like this. Martha, 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 oh Martha, oh Martha, Martha, the cows, the big cows, the brown cows, the black cows, the white cows, the cows, the cows, 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 the cows are in the corner, in the corner, in the corn, corn, corn. That would be a praise chorus, he said. <laughs> it just so happened that on the same day, there was a man from the city, though, who went, through, uh, went to the country for church. And he came back to his wife, and he, she said, how did it go? And he said, well, it's a little different there. He said, they sing hymns in that church. She said, what is a hymn? And he said, well, Martha, if I were to say to you, Martha, the cows are in the corn. That would be a, a praise chorus. But if I were to say it like a hymn, it would be like this. Oh, Martha, dear Martha, hear thou my cry. Inclinest thy ear to the words of my mouth. Turn thou, thou whole wondrous ear, by and by to the righteous, inimitable, glorious truth. So look to the bright, shining day by day, where all foul corruptions of earth are reborn, where no vicious animal makes my soul cry, and I no longer see those foul cows and the corn. 
And if you sing verses 1 and 3 and do a key change on the 4th, that would be a hymn, he said. That's chuckle. That's a bit a dated reality. But, but sadly, in many churches, that became a divide in the worship, in their, in their congregation. All of us have preferences about what we like and, and don't like. And all too often, the, dis- the discussion is centered just around that. What, what do I like? What are my preferences? Rather, perhaps, than a, a greater question that we should be asking is, what pleases God? Which is why we need to look to God's Word to find out what honors Him in worship. Because after all, the goal of worship is to give worth to God. Amen? It's, it's not for you and me. It's to respond to Him. It's to give Him the worth that He re- deserves. And so if we believe that the, the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, then we will look to the Bible and not ourselves for what God desires and how God desires to be honored and worshiped. This is where a passage like this in Nehemiah can be really helpful to us, even though it's 2,500 years old. Again, it's so uh, dated. It certainly doesn't say everything about worship, and everything that it says, honestly, may not be uh, prescriptive, completely prescriptive for us, but there are truths, there are principles, I think, that it points to that are repeated and echoed throughout the Bible. That help us to begin forming a picture of what kind of worship honors God. What, what, what ways should our worship be pleasing to Him? So I want us to think about this passage and, and look at several aspects of worship that are taught here. And, and maybe it will begin to shape some of our thinking about, about worship. So I've got eight of them. I hope you brought lunch. Just kidding. I'm not going to say everything that can be said about every single one of these aspects, but maybe they'll trigger some thoughts for you and, and further study and, and prayer. So I'm going to move through them uh, this morning. First of all, notice this passage teaches us something about the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Notice the purpose of their worship was to celebrate what God had done. It was to celebrate, to thank Him for His amazing provision, uh, and to dedicate themselves and their work to the glory of God. So think about those themes just as we think about the purpose of worship, celebration, thanksgiving, and dedication. Celebrating God for who He is, for what He has done for us. That's the primary aspect of their worship. Worship always begins with God, not never us. It does not begin with what we are doing, but what God has done for us. We're responding in celebration and praise, magnifying His name, His works. It includes thanksgiving, their celebration, there's thanksgiving. They're marveling here at God's amazing generosity toward them, and we can only wonder about what they may have been thanking Him about, but we think about our whole story here, the study of Nehemiah, His providential hand in so many ways guiding Him back in those early chapters, His provisions for the wall, uh, His presence with them as they faced 
uh, different uh, enemies, the partnership, the unity they experienced as, as they were accomplishing this task. In fact, Thanksgiving is mentioned in verse 31 and verse 40 as well as those two choirs sing, Thanksgiving was a theme. Verses 45 and 46 make it clear that songs of praise and thanksgiving, it says, were not only offered on this day, but in days before. In other words, this was a pattern of their lives, to be thankful in their worship, and so it should be for us. And then they offered themselves in dedication, celebration, thanksgiving, dedication. They're dedicating the wall, they're dedicating, dedicating the work, they're dedicating themselves to the, the Lord. Worship demands surrender of us. So think about how the whole of one's life is involved. They're celebrating God, there's an emotional aspect, they're thanking God for all of these things, there's an intellectual aspect. They're dedicating themselves, surrendering themselves. There's a volitional aspect. Their will, surrender to God. All of these elements are taught in the New Testament as well. Again, and, and I, I would just encourage you to look for yourselves and study. I'll give you a couple of examples, three examples. Uh, in Revelation's portrayal of us gathered together in heaven around the throne, don't you know that's going to be a great celebration, church? There's celebration there. Think about Paul's letters and all of his letters uh, constantly reminding us to give thanks in all circumstances. And then we think about Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the call to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. These elements kind of begin to shape our thinking about the purpose of worship. But worship revolves around God, and it's about celebrating Him, not ourselves. It's about giving thanks for all that He is and all that He has done for us, and then it's about dedicating ourselves to Him. And we see that's happening here. Notice that this passage teaches us something about the manner of worship. Verse 27, it says they did all these things with gladness. Verse 43, it says they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. We're told here not just what to do, celebrate, give thanks, dedicate, but we're told the manner in which we're to do these things, which is to be great joy, gladness. We've seen joy already several times uh, in, in this uh, story. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, when they read from the book of the law, the people were given uh, to great rejoicing, it says, chapter 8, verse 12. Uh, chapter 8, verse 17, it talks about that there was very great rejoicing when they participated in the Feast of, of Booths. There's, there's joy. When you read the Psalms, uh, many of them, it seems, that, that God's people, uh, especially the ones that are talking about the, the entering into worship, they're to come before God with rejoicing. Psalm 33, 1, shout for joy to the Lord. O you righteous, he says. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with, with singing. Church, would you agree with me that we should have more delight in our hearts when we gather for worship than in anything else we do? There should be joy. Yet at times, Christian worship can, it's not joyful. It can, it can be uh, dreary or, or monotonous. 
it was a memorial weekend, and uh, Grandpa Adams was really excited because he got a visit from his six-year-old grandson, little Jimmy. Jimmy had just completed the first grade. He was coming to spend a long weekend with his grandfather. On Sunday, they got up early. They ate breakfast. They went to church, and Jimmy was very excited to be able to go to the big church, go to big church with Grandpa, he said. And they walked in the, the great foyer out there, and there were these large plaques on the wall, and Jimmy noticed them. He said, uh, Grandpa, what's that? And Grandpa said, well, those, that's, a, that's a plaque with all the names of the people who died in the service. And the little boy said, which service did they die in, the 930 or the 11? <laughs> and, and all of us perhaps have sat through a worship service that, that perhaps uh, we seem to have left us more dead than alive. And let's be honest, it could have been the service itself. Maybe it was poor planning. Maybe things just didn't come together like the people who put it together had hoped it would. Poor execution, sometimes that happened. But, you know, if we're really honest, many times it's because our hearts are searching for joy in the wrong things. They didn't sing my favorite song. They didn't play my instruments. Joy ought to characterize our worship because of the greatness of our God, never because of what is the music uh, part of that. The third, in saying that, it is important, notice the variety of worship. Verse 28, and the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem for uh, the second part, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. Notice there, were, there was a variety of singers that was included. Notice verse 27, there's also a variety of instruments. There were cymbals, harps, lyres. Uh, verse 35, uh, the, the variety, the priest sons with trumpets. Verse 36, we're told others just played musical instruments, apparently a variety of instruments. Uh, there were two large choirs that were mentioned, two choirs, verse 31, verse 38, 40, and 42, those choirs are mentioned. Perhaps we can envision them, Nehemiah placed them standing on top of the wall, going opposite directions and walking around the wall, perhaps singing like Psalm 48, which says, Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. It's a beautiful picture. We think about variety in worship. I know that Mark and I and, and others, when we gather uh, each week to talk about the upcoming service, we try to think about variety. It may not appear to you all the time, but, but we do try to think about that. Some of our, our services may be a little more band-driven at times. Some of our services may have uh, orchestra in, involved in them. Sometimes we utilize the choir. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we have an ensemble who sings. And, and I think... it. it it's hard, to, it's hard to manage all of that, but, but we try to do that. Worship, because here's the principle, worship is best if it's a shared experience in which a variety of people are participating in the worship. And not just the people up here, but here participating. What a blessing it is. What a blessing it is in our fellowship that, that we have so many talented people who can play all different kinds of instruments and sing 
And yet we should know from this that however skilled the musicians and the singers are, that the Bible always emphasizes a characteristic of worship that takes priority over musical ability and gifted people in worship. And that priority is always the hearts of the worshipers. Look at the heart of worship. Before the service got started here in Nehemiah, verse 30 says, And the priests and Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and and the wall. This was an Old Testament ritual, if you will, that is no longer binding for us today in the sense in which they did it. I think Christ fulfilled it, but it's certainly more than just a formality. But you understand that when we come to worship, uh, that, that there, there needs to be a sense in which the, the holiness of our God and the sinfulness of ourselves and, and which we are entering worship concerned about our hearts before Him. Now, the psalmist taught this, again, if believers wanted to stand in the holy place, it says, and worship God, then they must have clean hands and a pure heart. Listen to what it says, Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. It's really important for us to remember the Lord is not moved by some presentation that we can put on with a variety of instruments and a variety of people and choirs and all those different things when he discerns unworthy and unacceptable things in our lives. That the psalmist knew that they had, uh, that this external ritual would do nothing in their worship if they were treasuring unconfessed sin in their hearts before God. I think we read this last week together as a congregation, Psalm 51, which says, the cry of this, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. These external shows, the sacrifices of God, what does it say? Are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is why we're given warnings, by the way. We come to worship in, in Isaiah about those who uh, seek to honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. Worship must include confession of sin, a, a plea to, to God for mercy. It must include faith in Jesus Christ, whose death and resurrection removed the, the guilt of our sin. Remember, it's only when God touches Isaiah's lips was he then made clean to worship and serve God. Only when the sin is purged away was he ready to hear the call of God to serve. It, it, it matters, church, the heart's of worshipers are of greater importance than the voices or the variety or anything else. Your heart. God desires our hearts to worship Him. Fifth, notice the traditions of worship. The traditions of worship. This is, uh, found this helpful from Raymond Brown, one of the commentaries I was reading particularly helpful to point this out. Verse 46, this is one of several references, but verse 46, 
It says, for long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Now, once you notice from that, the connectedness to the past in the days of David and Asaph, there was a connectedness to the past, to the worship of the present. And that connectedness to the past was something that was speaking into their worship in the present. There are other references too. Verse uh, 24, it says the Levites were to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God. Verse uh, 36, there's another one with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. Verse 45, and they performed the service of their God according to the command of David and his son Solomon. Here's what Brown writes about. He says, They were sensitive to the fact that long before they were born, their forefathers had adored God, recalled His mercies, and surrendered themselves to His work. There was a connection to the past. And I think Brown is right in noting here that in the debate and the tensions about worship today that we feel sometimes between generations, that both, both of those uh, who may, maybe lead more toward traditional uh, methods or, or traditional ways of worship versus modern ways, that they have an enormous amount to offer both. Both of them should give and receive from one another. There's value and some of the newer songs that we sing that add a, a great uh, a vocab, a new vocabulary, a fresh vocabulary, a vitality uh, to our worship. But there's also this enormous value in the great hymns of our faith, which, which convey such great, rich theology. Here at the dedication of the wall, singing these great psalms. That's what it's talking about they're doing. They're singing psalms, psalms of David, psalms of Asaph. These psalms of their spiritual history, it helped enrich their worship. It did not hinder their worship. It enriched their worship. Church, we are so blessed. I hope that you you think critically about this. We are so blessed that we have multi-generations of people worshiping together in this room this morning. I know it's not popular. I know it's not cool. But we are so blessed to have it from children to senior adults gathering together, singing, both learning from one another, both encouraging one another. It's awesome to me because we are seeing the, the, the beautiful continuity of worship. We're seeing the faith being passed down from generation to generation right before our very eyes on Sunday morning. Grandparents, grandchildren, parents, children, singing, sharing the faith, proclaiming the faith to one another. This is not a liability in our church. This is a glorious truth, church. Now, sure, it can be challenging. And I think about this often. How much easier it'd be, how much easier it'd be if we just all segregated in, in our own service with our own age group and sing only the songs that we liked? 
That would be so much easier and so much, perhaps for some, some, some more pleasant, but we would be missing out on these incredible aspects of our congregation, these dynamics that we're just talking about, grandparents, parents, children, deferring to one another's preferences at times, but most importantly, rejoicing in the truth of Jesus Christ who joins us together. It is not the songs that we sing. It is not instruments that, it is not styles that unite us together, but it is the Savior who unites us together. We are part of the people of God, the family of God. We're connected all the way back to these names, these names that you, you may chuckle at me trying to pronounce every week during Nehemiah. These are your family members. Family in the faith. We're connected. These, and so as we sing great psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as the New Testament calls us to, from generation to generation, we are all recalling the same glorious God and His work for us. It's a beautiful picture. Don't miss it on Sundays. Sixth, notice the witness of worship. The witness of worship. Verse 31 and 38, I mentioned already, picture the choirs walking on top of the wall of the city. That is, everyone in the city could see what was happening, and even those outside of the city could, could see what was happening. Verse 43, remember, it says with their singing that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. There was, there was a witness. It was seen, it was heard. Seen and heard. Every worship service, a corporate worship service that we gather in is a testimony to God's person and work. We're giving testimony today. So anyone who comes to our service, they are, they, they are, they are no doubt, they, they ought to be in no doubt who it is that we worship and why we are worshiping Him. Clear. Seen and heard. This is uh, uh, important, I think, as well. I, I joke with the staff from time to time, and it's just a joke. Don't get all worked up, but that... Part of my vision for the church is to make Christianity weird again. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it's only a bit. Because I, I, I sense, I, I look around today and I see that in, in modern times, it seems to me that great efforts have been made to make worship services more attractive, more user-friendly, more relevant to lost people. And I just want to tell you, those are terrible goals for worship. I know that there are likely lost people in our services every week. And if you're here, I want you to know we love you. But, but I, I want to be as clear as possible on this. We, we want you to know the gospel. And we want you to know the love of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we want you to follow Him. But, but I sure don't want people, uh, anyone who comes in who is far from God, to feel comfortable and at home because our worship service feels a lot like the secular concert they were just at on Saturday night. Or that the sermon seems awful similar to a TED talk they watched on YouTube on Thursday. There ought to be something very uh, different about our worship because after all we are talking about eternal matters and we are talking about a holy God. 
Everything that we do is, it would be totally ineffective if it is not turning people's gaze away from themselves and away from this world and more towards God whom they need in their lives. And so our worship is a witness. But it is a witness, church, not by making it more like the world, but rather heaven and grounded in, in, in spirit and the truth of, of God's Word, not the world. That doesn't mean that we're not concerned, number seven, with the quality of worship. Uh, very briefly, when I read this service, I, and, and you can go back and read it too, and just look at everything that what happens here in this service, it gives you the impression of quality. It's something wonderful and beautiful. There's an abundant use of superlatives that describe that this was well done. You know, verse 27, they celebrated, but they didn't just celebrate. They celebrated with whiff gladness, right? Verse 31, they just didn't have choirs. They had two great choirs, it it says. Uh, Verse 43, the priest offered, they didn't just offer sacrifices. They offered great sacrifices, for God had made them rejoice with great Joy, it says. There's nothing half-hearted about this service. This is not haphazard. It was not thrown together. Everything was done well. Why is that? Because God is worthy of our best every week, church. He's worthy of your best from those who lead, from us who lead, and He is worthy of the best from those who, who are in the pew we want everything for, to do for, for the glory of God because He's worthy. Which leads us finally to the costliness of worship. The costliness. In these final verses, they, they, they call us to, both our, our, to offer both our money and our time and service to the Lord's work. Look what it says in verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests, for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. Look in verse 47. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Just a couple of brief comments here. Although giving, this is according to the Mosaic law, right? It even says according to the law that they were to give. But, but what I want to draw your attention to is that it's refreshing here to see it in the context of worship. That, that this idea of giving and sacrifice was a response of worship of the people. It is from such passages as these, I think, that the New Testament church encourages Christians, of course, to give regularly to the Lord as an act of worship, but to do so cheerfully, like 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. But this is a tangible way to express worship, because I want you to think about this. Worship is costly. When we gather 
All of you have. You've, made, you've paid to be here this morning in some way because you've set out time. You've set apart this time for your family to be in worship today. You've given up your time. That, that, that could mean a lot of decisions. That could mean not staying out too late on Saturday night because I want to be at church on Sunday. It may mean rearranging some schedules like you know, sports activities and things on Sunday in order for us to be here in, in worship. There's cost in that. There's a cost, it means, to deferring to other people when the music's not my favorite music of the morning. I'm deferring to those because I know that in some ways it's ministering to other people. There's cost. Worship is about denying ourselves and giving worth to God. And it's costly. There's a story in 2 Kings 24 when God told David he wanted him to raise an altar to him in worship on, on a threshing floor of a man named Aruna. And so David goes to this guy's place and explains to him God's call to him to build this altar on his threshing floor. And because it's King David, this man, he humbles himself. and He tries, he says, boy, David, you take this. You take my threshing floor. Here, let me give you the oxen as well to make the sacrifice. I don't want you to worry about anything. But David says this, 2 Samuel 24, 24. He says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. And here's the reason. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. What a principle of worship. And what a reorienting of worship. When you come, when we come together, we are here to give worth to God, to express His worth, to worship Him. I'll conclude with this. Gordon Ketty writes this. The Lord is not to be offered the dregs of our lives. The Lord is worthy of the first fruits, the cream of our lives. For just as God sent His only begotten Son as the sacrifice for the sins of people like us, so those saved by the blood of His dear Son can only answer from their hearts with the sacrifice of their new lives in Christ. He goes on, thus the first day of the week belongs to the Lord and and is an earnest dedication of the work of the other six days. The first tenth of our income is set aside on that day in token of the fact that we are and that all we are and all we have is given us by the free grace of our Savior. And then he goes on, and the priorities of our time, our love, and our prayers are set in relation to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of His everlasting gospel and kingdom. When we gather to worship, we are celebrating that, as we did this morning, that the price of our redemption has been paid. Amen? Amen? In full by Jesus. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. And out of gratitude and joy, then, we worship to to give our all to Him for what He's done for us because we love Him. This reminds us that if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, then please hear this in love. You have no ability to worship God. The Scripture says that if you're lost, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're dead spiritually. 
But the good news of the gospel is that God can make you alive spiritually. Ephesians 2 says, but God raised us up in Christ so that by His grace, through faith, we are saved. We're made alive. Will you turn away from your sin and turn to Christ today? Only when you do can you worship Him. I invite you as we close in prayer and as we sing. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this passage and all that it does teach us and shape us about our thinking of worship. And I pray that in these closing moments even, we would take this opportunity to worship you and give you praise and glory for who you are and what you've done for us. Especially thank you for Jesus. For those who don't know him, I pray today might be the day of salvation for them as they respond in repentance and faith to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.